Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Almighty, eternal and merciful God, our heavenly Father, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Open and illuminate our minds this morning that we may purely and perfectly understand your word and that our lives may be conformed to what we have rightly understood, that in nothing we may be displeasing unto your majesty. We pray this, Father, in the power of the Holy Spirit and in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, this morning, I want to let you... Would you pray with me? Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. So make us hungry this morning for this heavenly food that it may nourish us today in the way of eternal life through your Son, Jesus Christ, the true bread from heaven. Amen. Well, I want to begin this morning by discussing two related questions. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to get an advanced copy of your obituary? And, relatedly, have you ever considered the intimate link between dynamite and the Nobel Peace Prize? The year was 1888, and a Swedish inventor by the name of Alfred Nobel was enjoying his morning coffee or tea or whatever when something rare happened. He found in print his own obituary. This is a true story, by the way. You see, his older brother Ludwig had died recently, but the French newspapers had got them confused, and so the French journalist thought that Alfred died and so wrote an obituary of him. So here sits Alfred reading his own obituary, a rare chance to peer into the future and see what he would be remembered for, what his legacy would be, how his reputation will stand the test of time. And as he gazed down at the obituary, his own obituary, he was struck with horror at what was written. The title read, The Merchant of Death is Dead. The obituary went on in the same fashion with stunning lines such as Dr. Alfred Nobel, who became rich by finding ways to kill more people faster than ever before, died yesterday. (laughs) Why would they write something like this? Well, Nobel was an inventor and truth be told, most of his inventions were indeed designed to kill people. Nobel's most famous invention is dynamite, which by the way, the original name he came up with for dynamite was Nobel's safety powder, which I just think is funny. Now, I guess it's safer than the alternative, but still. Uh, He also held many patents for different types of explosives and ballistics and things like that. He was very wealthy from essentially being an arms dealer and manufacturer. So in a sense, he did become rich by increasing the speed and effectiveness with which human beings killed each other. So as he sat there reading this, 
reading his own obituary, what he would be remembered by, he was in shock. He had never thought about it. He had never considered what his legacy would be. And he decided to make a change. He decided that he, he had to leave a different legacy. He had to do something. So what he did was he wrote a new will, which allocated about 90% or even more of his uh, inheritance and things like that to give out Nobel Peace Prize. This is the invention of the Nobel Peace Prize. And so every year up until this day, um, I believe there's five given out, one for physical science, one for chemistry, one for medicine, one for literature, and one for just uh, someone who, who has benefited the general good of humanity. Uh, and it comes with cash and all that. And so he chose to change his legacy. The merchant of death created the Nobel Peace Prize. Sometimes truth really is stranger than fiction. Now, unfortunately, we, most of us at least, I, I hope no one gets the chance to actually review an advanced copy of your obituary. But what we can do this morning is to take a deep look at Solomon's tragic fall into sin, his epic slide into sin, and reflect on this and examine our own lives in light of Solomon's and his legacy. And so as we examine this this morning, we're going to ask such questions like, where did Solomon go wrong? How, how did a man so, so great and so blessed by God stray so far from the right path? And, and likewise, how can we, here in the 21st century, as New Covenant believers, avoid the same end? And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to take a look at the end of Solomon's life. Now, over the last five weeks, we have surveyed most of his adult life, his ascension to the throne, the, his receiving of God's wisdom, his building of the temple, his prayers. And last week, we observed Solomon. God appeared to Solomon and gave him essentially the choice between two paths, the path of humble obedience on the one hand and the path of stubborn sin on the others. And God told Solomon what the end of each path would be. And so as we look at the end of Solomon's life, we're going to see that Solomon chose the path of stubborn sin. His life will end in tragedy. His life will end in sin and discipline. The two paths were laid out before him, and Solomon chose poorly. Now, the organization of this morning's sermon is going to be a little different. Uh, we're going to take in the whole story of Solomon, and then afterwards we'll reflect on how that impacts our lives what we can learn from Solomon, what, how that, the word of God can speak to us this morning through Solomon. But before we get to Solomon's downfall, we need, to, we need to understand some context. Even this morning in Sunday school, as we're talking about how important it is to understand context, interpreting the book of First and Second Kings, it's very important to learn some of the laws that were laid out in Deuteronomy by God for the kings, because that will let us know where they go wrong. And so before we get to Solomon, we need to take a look at Deuteronomy 17. And this will help us make sense of where Solomon goes wrong. So turn with me to Deuteronomy 17, uh, starting in verse 14. Now, as we read this together, note in your mind the specific rules that God gives to his kings. Deuteronomy 17. And, and we'll note as we then learn about Solomon, Solomon's story where he goes wrong. So starting in verse 14 of Deuteronomy 17, here's what it says. And when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. 
Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes, and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to go either to the right hand or to the left, that he may continue in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. So in summary, there's some basic rules for the king. He's got to be an Israelite. He can't acquire excessive amount of horses, many horses, especially he's not to go to Egypt to get horses. He's not to acquire many, or again, it's the same word, excess, an excessive amount of wives. He is not to acquire an excessive amount of silver and gold. And he is to handwrite his own copy of the law and read it all the days of his kingship. So this is the lens with which, as you read First and Second Kings, you, you need to view all of the kings. And this is the lens to which they will be compared. And as we look at the end of Solomon's reign, this is the lens with which we must view him. And as we do that, the first thing we're going to see this morning is simple. Solomon's story. Solomon's story. So what happens to Solomon? Well, to see that, we're going to start in 1 Kings 9. And because we have such a big portion of scripture this morning, we're not going to read every verse. But we're going to highlight some of the things that are detailed in this account. And in, verses, in chapters 9 and 10, really what we're going to see is how glorious Solomon's kingdom has become. We see the vast amount of accomplishments that he's had. Um, and so I want to highlight some of these things. The first thing we see about Solomon is that he was an astute deal maker. In 1 Kings 9, that comes out. Solomon makes a deal with Hiram, and Solomon comes out ahead in his deal with Hiram. Solomon trades 20 uh, what we might call kind of podunk cities to Hiram for basically a limitless amount of gold and cedar. Um, Hiram's not too happy about it, but, but their friendship stands. And so we learn from that that Solomon was an astute deal maker. Solomon was also... A, a world-renowned builder. All right, we saw that last week when he built the marvelous temple. He built a massive and magnificent palace for himself as well and his servants. He also built a beautiful house for his wife, Pharaoh's daughter. And here in chapter 9, we find out that he also built extensive military fortresses throughout the borders of Israel and filled them with soldiers to keep peace in the land. So Solomon was a world-renowned builder. Solomon was also an international trader and businessman. In, in chapter 9, verse 26, we learn that Solomon built, built a huge merchant fleet that supp was supplied with sailors from Hiram. And this fleet sailed across the world in their day, uh, bringing back massive amounts of gold and other exotic materials. And also one of the reasons that Solomon became so wealthy is that Israel sat at the crossroads of all the ancient kingdoms. And so any trade routes all went through Israel. And so Solomon benefited from that through taxation and other things. Solomon wisely took advantage. And so Solomon was a successful and international trader and businessman. Solomon was also an accomplished naturalist. Chapter 10, verse 22 tells us that this trade fleet also brought back more than gold and silver, but it brought back apes and peacocks and other animals. In 1 Kings 4, we, we learned, if you remember, that Solomon knew his, his wisdom, his knowledge extended to all the beasts of the field, all the animals of the sea, 
the trees. He had a vast amount of knowledge of all sorts of biological information. He was an accomplished naturalist. Solomon was also from noble birth. Simply put, he was the son of a king. So he was royalty. He had royal blood. Solomon was a brilliant poet and musician. He wrote psalms like Psalm 72, which was written by him. He wrote the Song of Songs, a beautiful love song. He also wrote over a thousand and one songs, 1 Kings 4 says. He was a brilliant musician and a brilliant poet. Solomon was also a noted man of faith. We studied his profound prayer a couple weeks ago in 1 Kings 3.3 and noted that Solomon loved the Lord, the only person in Scripture to ever be described specifically that way. 1 Kings 9.25 says that his religion continues. His faith continues. It says this, three times a year Solomon used to offer up burnt offerings and peace offerings on the altar that he had built to the Lord, making offerings with it before the Lord. God himself had appeared to Solomon twice. He was a man of faith. And obviously, Solomon was also a man of wisdom. Now, this is probably what we know him for best. He wrote over 3,000 Proverbs. 1 Kings 10.24 says this, The whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. The whole earth sought the presence of Solomon. He was not just wise. He was the wisest man on earth. He was an international celebrity. Solomon was a strong military leader. In 1 Kings 10.26, it says, And Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen whom he stationed in the chariot cities with the king in Jerusalem. He had a navy. His military was so strong that no one ever dared to attack Israel in the days of Solomon. And lastly, Solomon was extremely rich. Solomon had multiple strings of income. He was importing, he was exporting, he was trading, he was sending out explorers. And 1 Kings 10.14 says this, The weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. That's a lot of gold. One talent is 75 pounds. So if you do the math, that's about 40, well, it's almost 50,000 pounds of gold in one year coming to Solomon. Now, that may sound ridiculous, but as, as archaeologists and scholars have studied, that was possible back in this day, especially being located where Israel was. In one year, today, that much gold, if you had 50,000 pounds of gold, you would have $879 million. So that's just, that's just one stream of income he's making one year. He was rich. And the author of 1 Kings wants us to see all this. He wants us to take in the glory of Solomon, the splendor of his kingdom. Solomon's kingdom was so glorious that even foreigners were streaming in just to see its glory. This is perfectly illustrated by the story of the Queen of Sheba in chapter 10. So let's read about how glorious Solomon's kingdom was. Look at chapter 10, verse 1. It says this, Now when the Queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon... Concerning the name of the Lord, Sheba is most likely somewhere near Ethiopia, by the way. So she had heard of him all the way down there. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. Just makes me think of Aladdin when he comes into the city with the, okay, you know, the parade. That, that's what it was like. Uh, and when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. 
And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord. Listen to how it describes this. There was no more breath in her. Took her breath away. And she was a queen. And she said to the king, the report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and your wisdom. But I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told of me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you king. That you may execute justice and righteousness. Then she gave the king 120 talents of gold and a very great quantity of spices and precious stones. Never again came such an abundance of spices as these. The queen of Sheba gave to Solomon. Solomon was the richest and wisest man on earth. So rich and so wise that people were traveling from all over the world just to get a glimpse of his kingdom. Just to hear some of the words come out of his mouth. He was so rich that he took the queen's breath away. But unfortunately, this is not where Solomon's story ends. Solomon's story ultimately ends in tragedy. The adept reader may have already begun to pick up on this. You see, if, if you have the, the words of Deuteronomy 17 in your mind, you may have already begun to see hints that, that not all is well. Even in the description of the glory of his kingdom, there are hints along the way that downfall is coming. The first is simple. He married an Egyptian princess. None of the Jews were allowed to marry non-Jews. And you'll notice that the author of 1 Kings continually brings her up throughout the story, through, which is, it's obvious that he's showing that there's something wrong here. Solomon has already begun to disregard one of the most basic laws of, of Israel. He was also importing horses from Egypt. Look at 1 Kings 10.28. And Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt. I mean, that was one of the most specifically defined laws, and Solomon is disobeying it. But here, Solomon directly disobeys the Lord's commands. And also, it seems that Solomon is gathering many horses. I mean, this is also forbidden. It's kind of hard to know how many is too many, right? But the way that the author describes it, it seems like his, he's got a subtle hint here that it's too many horses. See, Solomon's trust was to be in the Lord, not in his military strength. Solomon had also amassed much gold and silver to the point that it seems excessive. Again, this is one of those things that was forbidden in Deuteronomy 17. Solomon spends his time filling his palace with gold, coating shields, coating his house, coating his dining utensils. And in chapter 10, he builds an illustrious, a massive ivory and gold throne for himself. And you'll notice that the descriptions of Solomon's glory in chapter 4 were about how happy the people were and how blessed his kingdom was. The descriptions in chapter 10 were about how glorious he was, how glorious his stuff was. No longer do we see the prosperity of his people. There's subtle hints, subtle hints that Solomon is, is not all right. His material prosperity is great, but he's losing focus on his spiritual life. But none of these ultimately are listed as the factors for his downfall. One thing, Scripture tells us, led to Solomon's downfall. One sin. So what was it? What was the sin that led to Solomon's downfall? 
a divided heart. He had a divided heart. His heart strayed from the Lord. His heart turned from Yahweh, his God. He did not love Yahweh with all of his heart. His loyalties became divided. And this divided heart brought the anger of the Lord down upon Solomon. Look at 1 Kings 11 as we see Solomon's downfall. Now King Solomon, starting in verse 1, now King Solomon loved many foreign women. Notice the word many. Along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. These are all the enemies of Israel. From the nations concerning which the Lord had said specifically to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them. Neither shall they with you for surely. God had warned them. Look what he says. For surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. But look what it says next. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then we get this stunning couple of sentences. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. To hear this should send shivers down your spine. I mean, words can't even do justice to what is going on here. Solomon, the great king of Israel, has gone after other gods. He's forsaken Yahweh and followed after false gods. And not only that, Solomon, the great builder of the Lord's temple, has now focused his efforts on building altars to abominable gods. The, the word here in, in Hebrew, abomination, means filthy, disgusting. It's an absolute horror. A man blessed with wisdom from on high is now chosen to throw Yahweh's name in the dirt as he goes and follows after other gods. And these gods aren't neutral. Milcom and Molech were both known for the practice of child sacrifice. Parents would burn their children on their altars to gain their favor. Ashtoreth, a goddess of sex and perversion. And Solomon the king is publicly endorsing their worship, building altars and places to go worship them. His heart is divided. He has not only broken the first and second commandment, but pretty much the rest as well. He's dishonored his father David. Remember back to last week. Solomon has now committed the one sin that Yahweh said would bring the destruction of Israel. It's not like Solomon didn't know what was going to happen. God had appeared to him twice and warned him multiple times. Solomon, if you take this path, it will end in destruction. But sin blinded his eyes. Sin gave him a calloused heart, a divided heart. And in his arrogance and stubbornness, he bowed down to these false gods. But God is faithful to his promises. And so God responds to Solomon. Look at 1 Kings 11.9. And the Lord was angry with Solomon 
because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you, and I will give it to your servant. Yet, for the sake of David your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. God's anger rightly burns against Solomon, and God's discipline rightly falls on Solomon. The great kingdom of Israel will now be divided and no longer be a unified great nation. In the rest of chapter 11, God does exactly that. He raises up two military leaders to make trouble for Israel, Hadad in the north and Rezin in the south, and eventually he raises up a man named Jeroboam who leads the ten northern tribes in rebellion against Solomon's son, Rehoboam, splitting the great kingdom of Israel into two nations. And the rest of First and Second Kings tells the story By the end of 2 Kings, the ten northern tribes are obliterated by Assyria. The temple is destroyed and the southern kingdom is in exile in Babylon. And this entire thing has been set on this trajectory by Solomon's sin, by Solomon's refusal to obey Yahweh, by Solomon's spiritual adultery. And so Solomon dies. He's buried and the story of Israel continues on without him. And all that glory, all those riches, for what? His life ends in tragedy. His life ends in discipline. His life ends in idolatry and the worship of false gods. It's tragic. Now that is Solomon's story. That's the end of his story. But now we're going to go to Solomon's school. In other words, what can we learn from Solomon's downfall? What can we learn from the tragic trajectory of his life? Well, the first thing we can learn is we need to fight sin because sin that's left alone is sin that grows. Fight sin, for sin left alone is sin that grows. Sin is never satisfied with sin. It it always needs more. Solomon wasn't satisfied with a little bit of gold. He needed more. He wasn't satisfied with one wife, so he got another one. He wasn't satisfied with two wives, so he got a third one. Eventually, he wasn't satisfied with a hundred, so he had to get another one and on and on and on. Sin doesn't satisfy. Sin breeds more sin. Sin births more sin. The more sin that came into his life, the more his heart turned from God because sin doesn't satisfy. You've seen this in your own life. Solomon's downfall began when he married his first foreign wife. It began the minute he began to think himself above God's laws and God's commands. But his downfall was not evident until the end of his life. It wasn't until he was old, Scripture says, that he committed the worst of his idolatry. Happened slowly over time. Slowly as he allowed sin to take root, it grew and grew and grew until he became more stubborn and more arrogant and his heart was hard in old age. And this is why I've titled this sermon Brick by Brick because that's how we build our lives. Brick by brick, moment by moment, minute by minute, choice by choice. A faithful Christian life is not made on big momentous occasions. We may have those. Or a grandiose spiritual mountaintop experience. Again, not that those things are bad, but a faithful Christian life is lived 
minute by minute, choice by choice, day by day, humble obedience, daily relying on the grace of God every minute. But in the same way, the life that ends up embroiled in sin and tragedy and idolatry is built exactly the same way, brick by brick, little decision by little decision, compromise by compromise, sin by sin. You see, Solomon never intended, he didn't start out to build an altar to Molech, God of child sacrifice. In fact, if you had found Solomon two years before he did that, he probably would have said, what? You're crazy. I would never do something like that. I would never build an altar to a false god. I just built this temple. But sin deceived him. Sin took root in his heart and it led Solomon astray. Sin turned his heart from Yahweh because he let it grow. He left it alone. Sin divided Solomon's heart. And ultimately his choice to allow a little bit of sin led to more and more sin until he's building altars to foreign gods in Israel. Brothers and sisters, I want to ask you this morning, what sin are you harboring in your life? What, what sins are you allowing? What sins are you creating safe places for? What sins are you playing with this morning, thinking it's all going to work out? What sins are you, are you toying with, it, but you're saying, well, I would never go that far. We've all been there. But listen, the sin that is left alone is sin that grows. Right? We, this, this shows up in so many different areas. Look, I, I know I shouldn't be looking at the stuff online, but I mean, I'm single. I don't have a proper outlet. I'll just, I'll just do it a couple times. Well, when I get married, I'll stop. Well, I, I would never continue then. And, and the next thing you know, well, I, and, and, uh, and you're explaining to your wife, you're explaining to your kids what they caught you looking at. Sin left alone will take you there. It'll take you places you never thought you'd go. Because when it's left alone, it grows and hardens your heart. Same way with adultery and affairs. No one starts out planning to have an affair to commit adultery. Look, I, I know I'm getting emotionally attached, but I mean, I can't leave my job. I mean, he, she's, she's just a friend. It's just a friend. It's nothing really. It's just innocent flirting. We're just having fun. That, that's all it is. Um, I mean, I need to have good relationships with my coworkers, right? That's all it is. It's just coffee. It's fine. It's, I would never cheat. No, it's, we're just having lunch. It's, it's about work. It's just a drink after work. I mean, look, it was just a hug, okay? It was just a kiss. I know it's not right, but I'll stop. It's just, it's just, it was just that once. And you're there. Sin has taken you where you never thought you would go because you refused to fight it and kill it. The sin that is left alone is the sin that grows. Look, I know he's not a Christian, but he's really sweet. I haven't been able to meet any good guys I mean, I'm going to share the gospel with him. That, that's why I'm friends with him. Well, okay, we're not dating. It's just coffee. It's just a drink. Well, okay, we, we hang out a lot, but it's, it's not like we'd actually get married. I mean, we're just friends. It, it was just one kiss. I, I would never go beyond that. I mean, come on, okay, it's not like we're having sex. We're just having some fun, and it's not that big a deal. Well, okay, we did, but it was just that once, and you're in a mess once again. Because the sin that is left alone is the sin that grows. And this goes for any sin. So what sin this morning are you harboring? What part of God's commands are you ignoring? Saying, that's not for me. I'll be fine. Are there any sins that you're allowing to grow in your heart? Lust, gossip, anger, envy, laziness, ungratefulness, discontentedness, maybe just a complaining spirit, a lack of love, a desire for power, whatever it may be. The smallest sins are the ones that grow into the biggest sins. 
got to kill them now. Make war against them now. Fight them now, daily, minute by minute. Otherwise, they grow. And when sin grows in your life, your heart begins to divide. Your heart begins to harden and turn from God because sin left alone is sin that grows. And you may be sitting here thinking, well, I would, I would never turn away from Christ. I would never go that far. But that's not how sin works. You see, Solomon never fully turned away from worshiping Yahweh. He still worshiped God in his temple. He just added in some other gods to that. He just, on his way to the temple, he had to stop at the altar of Molech first. He had his Yahweh thrown over here in the temple, but he just had his other pagan altars over here too. And when you choose to harbor sin, you give it safe passage in your life, you're effectively building another altar in your heart to bow down to. You're saying, look, I want Jesus, but I want to have this other stuff too. I'll serve Jesus, but I'll serve this too. Solomon tried this and it didn't work. Before he realized, before he knew it, his heart was divided. And why? It's simple. Jesus told us this. You cannot serve two masters. Sin leads to spiritual adultery. It happened to Solomon, the wisest man on earth. Don't think it can't happen to you. You've got to fight the sin in your life because the sin that is left alone is the sin that grows. The second thing is this. Fight sin, for sin left alone is sin that deceives. You see, simply put, sin is deceptive. Sin never satisfies, but it will tell you that it does. Every single time it will tell you, no, but this time it will be satisfying. Sin always leads to misery and despair, but it will tell you, no, 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 it won't. It may be for everyone else, but not for you. It'll be fine. Sin leads away from Christ, but it will tell you just this once. It'll be fine. There's forgiveness. Don't worry about it. Sin leads to death and destruction, but it will never feel like that at first. Solomon was deceived into believing that his sin would have no consequences, even though God had appeared to him twice. Even though Solomon had direct warnings from God, he was deceived by sin. He was believing the lie. It'll be fine. It's not that big of a deal. But it ended in disaster because his heart was divided. So if you're harboring sin in this morning, know this, you are being deceived by sin. You're coddling your sin thinking it won't grow, but that's a lie. So I urge you this morning to see through, see through the deception. Let the word of God pierce your heart as Hebrews 4 said, to know that the sin left alone is a sin that's growing. And if there's a sin in your life this morning that is left alone, you're, you're protecting it, you're harboring it, you're hiding it, it's growing. Whether you see it or not, it's growing. And it's deceiving. So fight it. Kill it. Make war on it. Never stop making war on sin. The third thing is this. There's always grace in God's discipline. God is faithful in spite of our faithlessness. Did you notice what he said to Solomon? God said that he will not take Solomon's kingdom until he's dead. He's going to take it from his son. That's grace. He said, Solomon, even though you did this, because I, I love your father David so much, and I'm going to show you my grace, I'm not going to do this till after you're gone. In 1 Kings 11:36, he says this, Yet to his son, speaking of Solomon, yet to his son I will give one tribe, that David, my servant, may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem. He says, Remember, he had told Solomon, Solomon, if you do this, I will destroy the kingdom of Israel. But now he says, Solomon, I'm going to be merciful. I'm going to take the kingdom from your family, from the line of David, but I'm going to leave one tribe for them. That David will always have a lamp. In other words, David will have an heir 
in Jerusalem. I'm not going to squish the Davidic line. Do you realize what that means? The Davidic line is going to continue in spite of Solomon's utter and grave failure. The Davidic line will stand. The hope of redemption and the hope of the Messiah is still alive. God is still fulfilling his promises, even though Solomon failed to fulfill his end of the bargain. And you find this in all the prophets as well. They announce judgment on Israel for their spiritual adultery. But at the same time, they announce restoration, that the Messiah will come, that one day the Lord will redeem his people. One day, the final and ultimate Davidic king will come and he'll fix everything. If you read the prophets, you get the picture that Israel is saying, God, we've forsaken you. We don't know what to do. And the prophets respond saying, God will take care of this. Trust in him. So the people of Israel looked out on the horizon for their Messiah. We've heard Solomon's story and we've learned at Solomon's school. And now, as the people of Israel look out on the horizon for the Messiah, we see Solomon's son. See, the Old Testament ends looking forward to the Messiah. I love what the video said in Sunday school. It, it kind of ends. There's no end of the story. It hasn't finished. Well, what's going to happen? That's exactly how the Old Testament ends. Malachi, the last book in our Old Testament, ends saying, Elijah is coming as the forerunner to the Messiah. Look for him. Jesus tells us that was John the Baptist. In the Gospel of Matthew, we see, the first thing we see is a genealogy. It's a genealogy of Jesus, the Christ, son of David, son of Solomon. And in him, we find the solution to the problem of spiritual adultery. Because everywhere that Solomon failed, Jesus succeeded. The Israelites had a representative before God, Solomon, and he failed miserably. And all the kings from 1 Kings to 2 Kings committed sins. Although some were better than others, they all ended up failing. But we have a representative before God, one greater than Solomon, Jesus Christ himself the sinless son of God, and his heart never turned away from God. His heart was pure. Not even for a nanosecond did he ever sin. Solomon was led astray by the power of sin. Jesus Christ conquered sin. He loved God with his whole heart, mind, and strength every moment of his life from eternity past to the time he took his first breath to the time he took his last on the cross. Solomon eventually died, but Jesus Christ conquered death itself. And now Christ has taken the throne. According to God's promise for all eternity, where Solomon failed, his son prevailed. And now Christ the King announces that anyone who believes in him, anyone who will believe in him, will trust in him, who will forsake their life and follow him, receives full forgiveness of every sin, receives the righteousness that he won on the cross, and receives eternal life. Not only that, if you will believe in Christ, then you will be fully adopted into his family and be filled with the Holy Spirit of God, all because Jesus himself paid for our sin on the cross. And he himself conquered death and resurrection. That's the good news of the gospel. That is the message of the gospel. And that is the goodness and faithfulness on display for all to see. And so Christian, as you fight sin, as you make war on the smallest sins in your life, that is what has to motivate you. The love and the grace of God. 
You cannot fight sin by just thinking you're supposed to, but not really understanding. You have to fight sin understanding the love of God, understanding that while you were dead in sin, Christ died for you. The love of God on display in Jesus Christ. Your love for God will not sustain you in the Christian life, in the battle against sin, but God's love for you will sustain you in your battle. You are not saved by your love for God, but by his love for you in Christ Jesus. John 3, 16, right? For the world so loved God that he gave his only son that whoever loves him with all their heart will never perish, but have eternal life. That's not what it says. That's not what it says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. We sang it this morning as we sang grace alone. I will slay my sin. How? By grace and grace alone. Pure grace. So Christian, I urge you this morning, look to the grace of God in Christ Jesus and put to death the sins in your life. From the smallest to the biggest, give no sin refuge in your life. Refuse to harbor even the smallest sin. Confess them. Bring them to light. Encourage one another, as Hebrews 3.13 says, knowing that sin deceives, but, but as a body, we can fight against that. Bring them to God in prayer. Bring them to each other in prayer and receive his grace in time of need. By the power of the Holy Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body. Brick by brick, moment by moment, choose Christ, not sin. He is infinitely better infinitely more glorious and infinitely more satisfying than the greatest sin. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, my friend, the Bible tells us that you are a slave to sin and your sin will lead to death. In fact, you're already dead in your sin. So I urge you this morning, look to Christ for your salvation. Go to him in prayer, cry out to him for mercy, cry out to him for salvation and you will find him to be a perfect savior and a merciful savior and a loving God. Only in Christ will you find eternal life. Only in Christ. So let us end this morning with the words of Hebrews 12, starting in verse 1. It says this, Therefore, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of wit witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and every sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, all the while looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and who is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So Christian, if you're weary and faint-hearted in your fight against sin, consider Jesus. Jesus on the cross who gave his life for you. Jesus who died for you when you were dead in sin and trespasses. Jesus Christ who died for you when you were his enemy. If you're weary or faint-hearted, consider him this morning. Look to him for grace in time of need, and you will find him to be a merciful Savior. Solomon was a great and glorious king, but in Jesus Christ, the eternal king, we are beholding one much greater than Solomon. Long live that king. Amen.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so good to us. Father, we look to your scripture this morning. We look at Solomon's life. And Lord, we are humbled. We are humbled by the fact that one so wise and so great could fall into such tragic sin. Lord, let us take heed this morning lest we fall. And so, Father, as we fight sin in our life, Lord, we pray and we ask that you not only would give us a passion to fight against sin, help us to see through its deception, Lord. So often we harbor sin in our life because we don't truly believe that it's as bad as your word says it is. Lord, break that deception this morning. Let us see sin with your eyes. Let us see it for what it truly is. Lord, I pray that we would see right through the deception that it will satisfy. And instead, Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes to see the satisfaction that is found in Christ Jesus. Lord, give us the strength, give us the ability, give us the grace to look to you and put to death the sin in our lives. Lord, I pray that as we do this, you would also build our community. Lord, help us not to do this individually, but as a body, strengthening one another by the grace that is found in you. Lord, give us a passion as a church to be people who are righteous before you. And Lord, in our fight against sin, let us never become self-righteous, Father. Let us all be humble in our obedience. And Father, I pray for anyone here this morning who doesn't know you. Lord, break that deception as well. Let them see your son Jesus with the eyes of faith. Give them faith this morning. And so, Lord, as we go this morning and this week, fill us with your Holy Spirit. Give us strength and continue to reveal your great love to us. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.